But the bottom line is they only support a great program. If you have a crap program, which means what the coach is doing with the players and what we're doing with them in the weight room, that's your, that's your fundamentals. And any coach can do that. Have the program mapped out so it's pristine in terms of allowing for recovery and mm. optimal adaptation. That's your starting point. Hello and welcome to today's episode of the Basketball Strong Podcast. I'm Tim DeFrancesco, former LA Lakers strength and conditioning coach and doctor of physical therapy, and I'm here with my co-host, Emmy-nominated writer and author, Phil White. This podcast is not just for basketball junkies. It's for anyone who loves to hear the human stories behind great people while learning the science behind preparing your body for the court and high performance. Today's guest is Dr. Andy Barr. Andy is a doctor of physical therapy and a strength and conditioning coach who is currently working as a consultant with the Brooklyn Nets. Andy was hand-selected to be the lead clinician to oversee Kevin Durant's rehab from his horrific Achilles injury. He's held positions on sports medicine staffs at the highest level of elite sport, including within Premier League soccer, as well as the NBA. Andy is the founder of Quantum Performance and the inventor of Q-Bands a versatile training system for readiness, core activation, and injury risk reduction. You can follow Andy on Instagram at AndyBarPT. That's at A-N-D-Y-B-A-R-R-P-T. Check out QBands at QBands.co. That's at Q-B-A-N-D-S dot C-O. And then www.QuantumPerformance.co. Let's get into the conversation. Andy, take us into the backstory and the journey that led you up to now being one of the most sought after clinicians in the NBA and through basketball's elite. But as I understand it, started off in soccer. Yeah, that was always my dream to be a professional soccer player or football player, which depends on where we come from. <laughs> That's right. Um, yeah, unfortunately, didn't quite make the grade uh, due to injury somewhat. And then um, also just. I just don't know if I had the, the the psychological kind of mindset at the time. Just, I think, you know, there was a lot of things that um, influenced where I ended up, but I wanted to stay uh, within the game. And um, uh, I thought going down the physiotherapy route was like the best um, option. So I, I, I went down that route and then uh, I was very blessed with my union. They wanted to... Uh, really support young players not you know making the grades so they they were very helpful in that and I got into a course and made a lot of contacts because a lot of the other people on the course were in a similar situation to me they wanted a career outside of um, you know being a football player if they didn't make it or if if you had already like left um, playing then they uh, wanted to support that too so it was very good because I got a lot of contacts and then from there I was able to get a job uh, straight away um, with a, a professional soccer team, Bolton Wanderers, who were uh, at the time uh, one of the pioneers in sports science and medicine. Um, they had a team that was um, really, uh, you know, I, I would say older in terms of the average age of the squad. Um, mm. And they didn't really have the the resources to invest in like young up and coming talent. So, they tried to invest in the players that they had and also the the staff that they had to try and create an environment and a culture that really helped them maximize their potential from a health and <clears throat> health and performance perspective. So 
my kind of upbringing was really focused on that being proactive trying to find ways to like really maximize player health and performance and looking at all those different areas and then I took that kind of methodology on with me through my career when I worked uh, with Southampton which was the next team I worked with uh, who are also in the Premier League now and then also when I moved to Manchester City and then while I was at Manchester City we were looking at trying to develop uh, um, find uh, ideas for this new training facility that they were building this state-of-the-art training facility and while I was on that project I I started to look at different training facilities around the world and the US was obviously a focal point for me um, with all the amazing sports teams out there and the facilities that they had so I was on a mission to go and find out new innovative ideas and things to try and bring back to help with this training facility so while I was on that mission, I uh, went to the Knicks, New York Knicks, looked at their facility, and that's where I built a relationship there. And they were really curious about the stuff that I was doing and um, asked me if I'd be interested in working in the NBA one day. And because I have an American wife and that was always a um, you know an aspiration of mine to work uh, in another sport and another culture, I was like, yeah, I'd be interested in that challenge. And then six weeks later, I was on preseason with Man City and they said, could you come for an interview? So... I uh, said to um, Man City, I had, I had like a couple of days off, so I took those days off and flew to New York, met up with um, the the Knicks president and head coach, uh, Donnie Walsh and uh, Mike D'Antoni at the time and the, the team doctor. Right. And um, we got talking and they offered me a job uh, after a couple of days being there. Went back to Manchester and let the team know there that I was going to be pursuing a, a role with the Knicks in the NBA and um, I did six years with the Knicks. Like it was crazy getting into that in- environment after working in Premier League soccer. Like the contrast was a, was a steep learning curve, but really enjoyed it. <laughs> and then um, yeah, so then I, I decided I wanted to after working six years within the NBA, which was a phenomenal experience. I wanted to have a little bit more control of my schedule and a little bit less travel because it was super intense. And I was uh, just starting a young family, so we decided to. Uh, moved back into soccer, which the schedule is a little bit less travel, um, you know, heavy. So I, I did that with New York City FC for about 18 months, helped set the inaugural team in the MLS up. And then I uh, did that. Wow. And just, well, I really want to take a jump now and go and do some more stuff on my own, work with more athletes, work with more teams. So I, I moved to LA to set up uh, a business there. And then I've been in LA for the last six years running quantum performance and working with individual athletes um, and consulting with teams. And then <clears throat> the last three years, I had a, a big consultancy project with the new, uh, with the Brooklyn Nets, um, helped um, them with Kevin Durant and his return to play from his Achilles. And then I've just been working with them and other players and stuff since then, uh, based in LA. And that's that's you up to speed with my story. Standard, <laughs> yeah, standard standard operations. I mean, a couple of yeah. Premier League teams and uh, the Knicks, the Nets, Kevin Durant, start your own business, and um, and and then we're here. I guess that's uh, yeah. you know pretty typical. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, throw, throw, throw that, that in there. As one does, yeah. Well, you you covered a lot of ground there, um, and you humbly glossed over some of the the results that you were able to have with Bolton and then with, with the Saints, um, which is my own team, my dad's team, uh, coincidentally, and and then with Man City. And um, I believe that you you managed to to knock those injury rates down, and we're talking about non contact slash preventable injuries here by between forty and and forty percent, I think, at one team, forty five at another, maybe up to sixty percent with the third. Yeah. 
So, I mean, those are huge increases. And, and I, I believe at least one of those took place within the course of one season. So could you talk to us a little bit about uh, some of those injury reduction methods that you started to experiment with and why those started bearing fruit so quickly? Yeah, I think um, some of it is, you know, how you understand the game and the relationships that you build with the people that you work with, essentially. So it really starts with that a level of communication, communicating with the coaching staff, communicating with the players and communicating with the uh, the staff around you and, and, and getting to understand you know what their agendas are what their motive what motivates them and how you can help them and then when you have that understanding you start to get better connection in terms of them trying to do the things that you want to do too and your messaging so how you communicate and message and and um, the language that you use and speaking the game language so and then understanding that, that we're all in it together we're trying to um you know all win and how we do that is going to help with you know, um, we, we can help each other with that. So at the end of the day, to be able to win, you need all your squad and your players available. So the best ability is availability. So being able to keep the players fresh um, and healthy and having an understanding of the things that go into that so the, the head coach can pick his best best squad or players um, starts from that level. So then you break it down. It's like, well, okay, so um, you want a healthy squad. Well, how do you keep them healthy? So understanding what you're doing with them when they're training. So periodization, um, understanding the the quantity and the quality of actions that those coaches are asking and demanding of the players. So understanding how you can really formulate a program that keeps the players fresh, but also gradually and incrementally overloads them through the season um, to allow them to develop and grow, but also not be overtrained or under-recovered. Um, and then understanding recovery and then what's the best, how much time they need after a game to fully recover, understanding the ages of the players from young players to older players and the difference in terms of what they need uh, in terms of recovery and adjustment to the environment that they're coming in. Obviously, younger players, they're not used to the environment, so they need to be managed differently to the older players who um, are used to the environment, but they need more time to recover. And then mm. you've got more explosive players. So defining the types of things that each player needs was really important too. So more explosive players need more time to recover. Um, younger players, older players. So building that in and then individualizing programs and being very proactive with your approach. So rather than waiting for things to happen, you go out and find find where there could be issues and problem solve and put programs together where players are getting touch points regularly. So you can kind of uh, avoid things slipping through the net. So building a robust program that's very proactive, um, allowing you to monitor things and without getting too overwhelmed with information and data so you can actually act on the stuff that you're monitoring and make um, decisions in real time to help um, those players, like, uh, you know, not fall off the beaten track or, like, stay fresh and knowing what things can, can you know, influence the freshness and their overall health. So maximizing the energy levels and and avoiding fatigue from optimizing sleep optimizing nutrition as i mentioned before having a training program that is periodized so they maintain freshness and optimal recovery and then building robustness like making sure that the strength and conditioning program is is there to be specific to the game to allow them to be robust for the game itself so when you've got all those things in place and you're screening on your regular basis you can really formulate a program that map. There's a lot of stuff that can be avoided, especially from non-contact. If you have those things in place, contact stuff, you know, you're going to get that. 
Um, you can't avoid that in a contact sport, but non-contact injuries and soft tissue stuff, they are avoidable. And if you map out and, and have a good proactive plan that addresses you know, all the things that influence that, then you can really mop up a lot of those those injuries. And that's really what I put into place about those teams. Yeah. You mentioned a couple of different things that um, were interesting with regard to Bolton specifically. And yeah. you know the old saying about necessity being the mother of invention, that they had an older squad, you know, they maybe didn't have the resources of, you know, at the time a Chelsea, a Man United, or eventually where you ended up a Man City to just go out and splash mega bucks on yeah, exactly. the latest whiz kids or, or proven mid-career players, but that you were almost trying to recreate what AC Milan did with the Maldini project and well, squeeze some yeah. more good years out of, um, out of some veteran players. But yet you said that they, you know, and you, you aren't the first one to tell me this, you know, a co-author Fergus Connolly's talked about it, the little time he spent mm. at Bolton and not sure if you guys overlap, but yeah, that you really were innovative in, in your approach there. So can you talk a little bit about how those two things intersected? Because I'm guessing there's a lot of coaches listening that, you know, want to have an innovative approach, but don't have a Man City style budget or a New York Nick type budget. So yeah, with those two lenses in mind, what, what did you observe at Bolton and, and what did being innovative in sports science back at, back at that time mean? Well, I think one of the best things that came from it, it was like, it was a, it was a football culture, number one, so soccer culture, number one. So like most of the staff on the team had played the game. So we all had a good understanding. We knew how to communicate, as I was saying before. And then it wasn't sports science first, it was football science. So it was like, how do we really understand this from a football perspective and be innovative using technology that helps guide better decisions for that? So if you understand the game, then you can start with, well, how do we program number one? That's the most important thing. Like, So any coach listening, it's, it's really how they program to keep the players fresh, knowing how to develop long-term fitness and football-specific fitness. So that's like the biggest number one take-home for a coach listening. Know the game and be 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 specific with the development of the game, not just general athleticism, which, you know, is, is important. But it's it, if you want to be specific for a game, then you need to understand the game and then start from that perspective. So be football, use, use terms that are really relating to the, the sport that you're playing. So first of all, it was football science, not sports science. And then using technologies to help you know, monitor and guide the the game uh, um, and decisions that we um, need to to use to help them develop was was really the key. So, like looking at tech that, like heart rate monitoring, we were one of the first teams to to help use that. And this knowing what that means and how you um, use that information to help the players stay fresh, as opposed to thinking that you know then they're, they're actually not working hard enough or the you know so understanding how that data really. Um, was used was it was it was important and then also with our recruitment too so the players that were we were recruitment recruiting at the time we used a lot of um uh, data and understanding the data to help with that so we used a lot of data but we used it in a way that was really game related as opposed to we were using the data as our objective marker and then making decisions based on that it was like okay this is the game okay how does the data help with um you know, making better decisions with with the game, but it was always game led. Yeah, I love that. And you know, you've described and laid out such a good blueprint for kind of a tiered approach toward building out how you get to where you ultimately were able to really see that that impact through the injury rate reduction and and that 
probably took some time and I have to imagine it, it took some, it was not all this linear, beautiful, um, straight, uh, upward path either. As, as Mike Tyson, uh, once said, I think, um, it, everybody has a plan until you get punched in the face. So when, when, along that road of being a pioneer and when you're leading the charge on something, it's not always as easy as, you think when you're in that and it looks beautiful from looking back on it and, oh, those those pioneers, they led the way and all that stuff, but it was really hard in, in most of those cases. And so you talked about being the first to use heart rate monitors and do that kind of thing. Can you take us into some of the the things that were maybe a challenge you didn't expect in in those at those levels going from a player to then becoming a physio and leading the charges as a pioneer in that? Yeah, I think, you know, like you said, it's never a clear path. And some of the stuff when you're um, in that innovative innovative space is trial and error because there isn't research out there to really prove. And, you know, you right. want to, there's evidence-based practice is definitely, you know, something that I adhere to most of the time. But then also when you're in innovation, you, there's not the, – the evidence doesn't catch up with the innovation or the evidence often needs to catch up with the innovation. So you've got to try stuff. And when you're at the elite level – you don't, you know, there's not that much research and information and data on elite level athletes anyway. So um, I think one of the things that is was initially a challenge was just getting player buy-in. Yeah. Because, you know, you, when you've got lots of different players coming from different cultures, previous previous environments and having, you know, diff, their own experiences and ways to do things, being able to like get them on board with your own culture that you've developed was a challenge and having like when I was at Bolton and, and also Southampton and Man City, it wasn't just like English players. It was, it was players from all around the world. Like mm. the league is very diverse in its cultures. So, and they've all come from different backgrounds and, and, you know, have different experiences and they're, they're all very successful. And at Bolton, um, we had a lot of players that had had success in their careers, but they're at the end of their careers. And it was like, well, how do we get more out of you? So I think, you know, the challenges were getting them to buy into what we were doing and what we believed at the time was, you know, being more proactive and forward thinking, breaking habits at the time that were not great um, for their overall health, well-being, like nutritional habits, uh, sleep habits, um, training habits, all those things. And just trying to really focus more on recovery, having a bit more time off and not have and trying to encourage that, like and getting the coaches to buy into that because, when we when I first started at Bolton, we always trained on a Monday when they played on a Saturday, and we know now that you're not fully recovered after you know 48 hours of playing um, you know a, a high level, high intensity sport. You need more time to fully recover and fully flush out all those byproducts. So 48 hours was really important. But just getting the coaches and the players to buy in that Monday, although you've had a Sunday off, Monday is still recovering. So. Mm flipped it and we did well Sundays is now your recovery day Monday is your day off and Tuesday is now when we start the week so we're, we're getting them to buy into that wow. time and understanding you know how to periodize better to allow your place to stay fresh that was huge and avoiding certain types of running and training and things like that that they would do just trying to get that to buy in rather than thinking like back in the day when when we started playing the game and playing sport when I played it was all preseason was all about you start with long distance running and and then you start with like trying to build up your endurance and steady state running. You start with a 20 minute run, 30 minute run, 40 minute run. And then you go and play the game in preseason 
and um, your first preseason game, you're so tired because you haven't trained for the game. You, the, the sport's an interval sport, so right. it's like, and and then when you and then also the amount of actions that you have when you're playing in bigger spaces versus smaller spaces, and getting the coaches to understand that, you know, if you because you, initially we'd think that when you started, you you start with small space because it's easier. Well, it's actually harder. Smaller spaces is more actions per minute, more intense. Mm. So starting in a bigger space field and then starting to like periodize from that and having less actions per minute and then trying to then work more on endurance and and doing it by playing was really like a, a, a new wave of thinking. So using the game and just modifying that and understanding what the demands of um, the game and the things that we really need to to overload and then how to periodize that was that was a challenge just to get in that type of buy-in so that type of communication as i said before having the relationships and building that with the players and the coaches and having the same understanding and goal and then creating the culture and getting them to buy in those challenges were happening all the time and then there's such a high volume of players that were coming in trialing out like you know get right it. So, but so having the staff cohesiveness that was one of the, the best things that i enjoyed when i was working at bolton is we had we were like a family for like the seven years that i was there everybody loved working with everybody we had a great culture and the players sensed that the players sensed the energy and um, the head coach sam allardyce at the time he was just such a great motivator great listener and very innovative and because he was a very open communicator, everyone felt that they had a voice. So, you know, even when there was problems going on, it was never missed. And we had like a group to solve the problem. So it was always a group approach to everything. And if he didn't like it, you know, he, he wouldn't go with it. But at least you had the opportunity to speak. So he had he created an environment of open communication. And I think that was really like, um, you know, pioneering as well in terms of how a lot of other sports were working in, uh, at the time. And often in sports, very silo driven. And you don't get that integration interaction. It's not an interdisciplinary approach. It's more of a multidisciplinary yeah. approach where, and then people just operate on their own accord, but because they're not operating from the same level, same goal, same, you know, language. Um, yeah. So that was really where we helped eliminate a lot of the challenges, but it's still, you know, when you work with players from many different cultures and um, experiences, that was, you know, one of the biggest things. Yeah, no, that's, uh, I, I, I think that's really, important to touch on because people assume that there's these super staffs with these elite clubs, elite teams, elite organizations of sport and the, the, the super teams, not only the, um, the, the super team that's on the court, on the court or the field, but, or the pitch, but, uh, but the super team of the sports medicine staff of the strength and conditioning staff, and that they're just somehow cohesively glued together right from day one. And I, I've found more often than not, that's actually much harder to achieve than, than to achieve. And so, um, the, and, and so then, then you, people would think I should say, and so, I, I think that culture piece and and like you said, it really stood out for you because I'm sure along other stops uh, of the way, um, it, it was maybe more of a challenge to get that culture from the top down and that kind of thing. And it can really change 100%. things. Yeah. I want to, I want to go uh, at the risk of getting into um, a, a technical, more technical based conversation. I want you to make it not technical for us, really yeah. simplify for us the idea of heart rate monitoring, because what were you, when you were selling it as a pioneer of the first to use it on elite soccer athletes, and then beyond that, what are the kinds of things that you're saying to those players? Hey, 
guys, this is going to help us because it will tell me this and then I can do that from that. Or this is going to help us to understand X, Y, Z, and therefore it changes this. What, what are those things that you really uh, feel like from a heart rate? Because you see heart rate monitors on a lot of people there. I mean, you could go to Orange Theory Fitness and it's about heart rate monitoring now. And um, I'm just not sure that everybody really understands why exactly we're applying that or what exactly are the major pieces of fruit that we're going to get out of that. Yeah. I mean, essentially what the heart rate monitoring does is it allows you to understand how well or what your the, the response is to the session that the, the player is doing. So, mm. and understanding what the response is internally, you know, gives you insight with how well they're coping because you have, there's two different load outputs. And like I said, if you have the game and we have a training session, we can't say that everybody is doing the same thing. So they're all going to have their own different baselines because they're all different positions or different ages or different fitness levels. Um, but if we know that within a certain type of training session, um, you're going to get certain types of external load, which is, you know, the distances that they're covering, the speeds that they're going at, the the accelerations and decelerations of the actions that they do when they're playing. And then you have the internal load, which is how they respond to those actions. So how does the heart rate respond to that? Now, you might be able to do the same level of external load, so distance covered, for instance, week to week, but how your body is coping with that load will be represented more on the inside with your heart rate. And there's lots of other factors that can influence that. So if you're in a fatigue state, you might see spikes in the heart rate or excessive high levels of heart rate when you don't want it. So ideally, you want the player's mm. heart rate to stay as low as possible with the demands as high as possible. So if the heart rate is high and the demands are low, they're unfit and they're not coping. But if the demands are high and the heart rate is low, then you know they're really fit and they're coping. But all of a sudden, if you say, well, the demands are the same as they've been, and all of a sudden there's a spike in their heart rate or there's a spike in an internal response, then you know, well, what is that? You can ask a question. Are they sleeping well? Are they eating? Are they fully recovered? You know, are they doing too much outside? Are they stressed? Are there other factors that are involved that are causing them to have a higher spike in their internal load, which can then flag you to make an adjustment in the program and then just investigate stuff? So it's just that it just gives more information in terms of how you monitor players. That's fascinating. And it lines up perfect with what Dan Garner, nutrition specialist Dan Garner, talked about on an episode that we did here on the Basketball Strong podcast. And as he talked about, it's like, hey, from his lens, there might be a case where coaches or even some strength coaches, uh, rehab professionals are saying, you've got to do more laps. You've got to do more fitness work, do it after practice, that kind of thing. But like you just said, it just opens up the conversation to see if it actually is a fitness issue or if it's, as Dan said, maybe it's a magnesium deficiency. You yeah, know, fatigue is often confused. Like, yeah. So, and the old school method when somebody isn't coping with the session is they do more, they do more running. But, and then what usually happens is they get injured. Right. So like, yet the only way that you can play catch up is allowing time for physiological adaptation. Um, but if there's drop off, then maybe it's not fitness. So if they're all of a sudden not tolerating what they've been used to, then it might not be fitness. It might be that they've got some accumulation of overtraining and fatigue and they're doing too much or they do have a nutritional deficiency or they're under-recovered because of sleep and nutritional psychology. So it's either training program, sleep, nutritional psychology, if you're seeing a drop-off. Wow, so yeah. fascinating. 
really yeah. interesting. So could you compare a little bit and, and maybe contrast as well kind of the state of football science when you left the UK and basketball science in the NBA when you got to the Knicks in that that pretty uh, significant transition there in, in 2009? Yeah, I think, um, you know, I was extremely excited to get into the NBA. I followed it somewhat when I was, um, you know, a kid and a, a youth athlete and um, I enjoyed playing it. But to be honest, I had no idea what I was stepping into in terms of the culture. And uh, I got by, I think, the first few years just because I was a good practitioner and I had like a methodology, but I wasn't starting or understanding the culture as well as I could have when I was coming into it to be as effective. Now, my role, you know, I wasn't like in a decision-making role when I came in, so I didn't really need to have like that, real understanding and it, and it was I, I had time to kind of learn and utilize the stuff that i knew from working in in football and and bring that across um and because i'd played at a pro level i knew what it was like to be an athlete so i could identify and communicate and relate to players from that perspective mm. um but then just really understanding the basketball culture and understanding um the demands that these players have put through are different from what they are within football and just getting used to that took um, oh, at least two to three years before I really got my my head around it. Um, and, you know, when I first joined the Knicks, we were um, really trying to embrace technology. And there was a lot of technology that we brought into the environment. But we made a lot of mistakes because at the time we didn't understand the game. And there, there was not enough information and data on the game either in basketball. So it's really hard to understand the demands and to develop programs if you don't have that like baseline of information. So we were there was a lot of experimenting at the time and there was, we used technology and we tried to, to get more insights. Uh, but like I said, it was probably about three years before I really got to grips with the culture, understanding really how impactful travel was and the scheduling. Um, it was interesting because when I first came into the league, I thought, you know, playing back-to-backs was horrendous. And I was like, what, you played two games in two days? How do you do that? And then you might have a day and then you've got another two. Like some weeks you're playing four games a week, so even five. Right. Um, and I was like, five games a week, what? <laughs> How is that even possible when I just came from a sport that was like two games a week was like a lot. Right. Um, but let alone like five games a week and then two of them are back-to-backs. So understanding that, that let piled on with the travel and the fact that the players are getting in sometimes at 2, 3, 4 a.m. the night that they're playing a game the next day. I was like, this is crazy how they can cope with that. So it wasn't so much the demands of the game itself that I really understood it. that was a challenge. It was actually what how they um, are managed outside of that, like the mm. travel, the sleep deprivation, the nutrition, how they're trained in between those games. And once I realized that that's the biggest in- indicator of like what's going to help with um, mitigating injury risk and fatigue as opposed to like, you know, the back-to-backs. Yeah, back-to-backs are tough, but it's more tough the fact that they're not recovered going into a back-to-back. You know, because the game itself, it's not that long and they don't, they can sub in and out. And, you know, if they're managed well, they can stay fresh for those back to backs. But when you pile that on with, you know, having three hours sleep the night before and trying to get them fresh, and that's really where the injury risk is uh, ramped up. So, yeah, that was just learning that culture was like super interesting when I first came from uh, professional football. 
Yeah. Yeah. And, and, and I, I concur. I didn't make the transition over from uh, pro or elite football or elite soccer, but it was uh, equally as eye opening and, and just uh, mind blowing for me at different times as well. Um, can you actually open that canister a little bit more so that yeah. uh, to give an insider's view of what a player kind of goes through in a, a typical in season week and, 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 or three day snapshot of those challenges that, and then sort of tie that into from a clinician standpoint, how do you process that and, and, and just try to make sense of it and, and try to do anything with it in the speed and the pace that it's happening. So it's like, if you look at um, football, or soccer versus basketball, like football and soccer within season, you can develop players and allow a periodized program to let them mm. work enough time through the week to allow them to prep. So they might play Saturday or Wednesday or, uh, or just Saturday to Saturday, and they have time to recover, time to build, and time to prepare for that next game. So it's like a constant cycle. So you can develop. Whereas basketball is a... Um, a monitoring sport in season and a maintenance sport and then a development sport off season. So during the season in basketball, you can't really develop what you can do is maintain and try and maximize freshness. You can probably, you can build some strength still, but you know, a lot of it is maintenance. Um, and the reason being is just because the, the schedule so hectic and it's hectic with games and travel. Um, now there's the season is more extensive. Now there's less, um, there's a little bit more time between games and they 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 remove some of the back-to-backs. But what they did by doing that is there's less days off in terms of where in the previous schedule, it'd be back-to-back, day off guaranteed, and then it might be a couple of days before the next game. So they remove the back-to-backs, but now it's more like game, day in between, game, day in between. So it's like you're always playing, recovering, playing, recovering. So there's never really a chance to have a little bit more time to do um, you know, some development work or training. So a daily schedule for a player might be coming for shoot around on, or they might have practice there for a game. It's not going to be too intense because they've got to stay fresh for that game. Mm-hmm. And they'll come in um, as a practitioner. You want to check them out, make sure, you know, the um, they don't have any um, current issues. So you do like, a, you know, a manual therapy assessment, whatever it is. And they might go through some other monitoring stuff, maybe a jump test or, um, a very quick um, strength test like Kangatech or something, which gives a, an indication of isometric force output. So you can kind of monitor certain things, see where they're at from a freshness level. What would you then, get from a jump test or, or, or an isokinetic test? Like from if, if, what are you looking for? And then what is that telling you about internally with the athlete? Differences from the baselines. So because you're monitoring, it's like that's your baseline. What things are different? And is that, you know, what, what could that be? So it's like, we know where they're at. Are there any fluctuations? That's the biggest thing. Got it. And they're two quick tests, jump tests. You can look at, um, cause they could, in a jump test, you can produce the same amount of, uh, power, but how you do it can be different. Like your ground contact time can be increased and you still get the same amount of power. So certain wow. um, flight time to contraction time is something that, something that we'll look at. Um, and that gives you an indication of, are they spending more time on the floor to generate that force or are they, um, doing it with a quick impulse and it's more efficient. So just quick insights like that can help determine whether an athlete's fatigued or not, or are they got any, um, you know, with the Kangatech, which we use at the nets, which is a nice tool. We can see whether there's um, um, any changes with the, the peak force isometric output and it's mm. no real damage. No, there's no um, eccentric motion like you'd get with a, 
uh, isokinetic tests or that type of strength testing. But what there is is um, it's dynamometry essentially, and that gives you a quick snapshot of the peak force and is it being maintained or is all of a sudden there a drop off, which can be an issue. And then why is that? Is there like an asymmetry in their pelvis? Or have they got some overload in the body where we need to address? Does that mirror up with what they're reporting from a subjective perspective? Does it line up with what the what we're seeing um, on the table, what we're seeing in the weight room in terms of the jump tests? And you know, so you just get a quick picture, then you can make a decision. And then if you we do that like weekly, so we have a monitoring of the players, um, and then the players will be will will practice. In the practice, they they have the the practice kind of periodized in terms of the type of training they're doing. Um, if they're playing the next day, then obviously it's going to be a lighter technical practice. Um, um, so, but- so you'll be able to then. I just I just want to really you're making it sound really put you know tidy and and clean and and smooth and and it is when you're administering it because you're great at what you do. But I, I just want listeners to understand how fast this is coming in. This is just, if, if you're working with an Olympic uh, athlete and you're in charge of this one athlete, you can do this um, nice and take your time and, and find this information, think about and talk through with the athlete, the, the yeah. plan of action. But you've got 15, maybe 20, if it's training camp players coming in and you're keeping track of these things. Hey, and and it's it's chaos. So, <laughs> I mean, you tell, talk a little bit about what comes in when you see a, as you talked about, a delta, a change in off of normal, off of baseline. How do you then make a, a change of um, a, of plan, but do it in a way that is both art and science? Because it's not just science says this, so we have to do this, right? Because there's a person that that you're you're working with. Yeah, and that's the bottom line. It's just monitoring for insights. I mean, at the end of the day. Like you can see from how a player's playing, how they're looking. So you start with the game. Do they look like they're fatigued when they're playing? That's mm. the starting point. Mm. And the coach is like, he's not, he's underperforming. You know, okay, well, let's, where's that line up with the other stuff? Okay. Got yeah. it. Test down is, you know, his strength's down. On the table, he's looking, there's an like increased tone when we're assessing him. He's got some more joint restrictions. There's a, there's a flag, it's building up a picture. It's getting the overall context is key. Got it. So get the context and then you can make more informed decisions as opposed to, oh, his jump test down. So we're going to pull him out today. No, you don't do that because he might have had poor effort on the jump test that day. Right. You know, like there's, there's, there's many factors that you've got to take into consideration. There's the effort factor. So it's always an overall picture. And then there's little things that you can do that just help give you more informed decisions. But when you're managing a big squad of players, like it's harder to do that. You have to have an army of staff to do all these That's things right. from a sports science perspective or monitoring perspective. And not every team is fortunate enough to have that. I've just been blessed that the teams I've worked with, we've always had a lot of staff where we can implement those things. But the bottom line is they only support a great program. If you have a crap program, which means what the coach is doing with the players and what we're doing with them in the weight room, that's your, that's your fundamentals. And any coach can do that have the program mapped out so it's pristine in terms of allowing for recovery and mm. adaptation. That's your starting point. So as a coach, you know, that's your foremost injury prevention strategy. So that that's where you start from. Um, but like just going back to what we were saying before, like yeah, yeah, yeah. keep the players fresh. Um, you know, we do those monitoring techniques, but if they're playing the next day, they're going to have a lighter tactical session um, that day before. And then after that, it's like, you know, they, they may come in and get some hands-on therapeutic stuff. 
Next day, they'll have shoots around in the morning where they'll come in, do some more technical stuff in, and tactical stuff in the morning just to start the engine, go home for two or three hours, then report early for the game, um, then start the prep work where they'll come in and they'll get maybe some hands-on work before they go on the court, do some activation, get them warmed up, go on the court, do like 20-minute vitamin where they're like getting some shots up with their coach, then come in, do the team talk, and then they do another warm up before they play the game, and then the next, then after the game, it's like well, recovery time or lift, whatever the the schedule's looking like. Um, so then they might get a lift in because you want to keep the high days, really the high days, and you might want to overload them more that day where they'll come in and do more movements, more more some strength work, um, and then we might fly out that night, fly out to a different city. So you might fly to Chicago or even like cross. The country to LA, you know, depending on where, where where the schedule's taking you, and then you might have a West Coast trip, or it might be just a there and back. You know, you might be playing um, the next night on a back to back, so you get in maybe at two or three in the morning, uh, have a sleep in, maybe a, like have a team meeting, address any issues, um, and then you start again. You have the the game that night, and then you fly out after that night, um, have a you know maybe a recovery day if if there's time to do that within the schedule or it's like a light practice and then you prepare for the next game and then it's just continuous like that. Like, yep. You it never, it never ends. Home and it, then five days on the road or two days at home and five days, you know, it's like, it's just a constant like game, travel, game, game, travel, you know, <laughs> bouncing yeah. around. And, so and to, months. and to add to the, how chaotic that gets and random it, it is and how fast it just keeps coming at you you have all these other uh, uncontrolled factors that come into it because you could have laid out exactly what the recovery plan needed to be based on the information you're getting on a jump test or an isometric test or anything like that, or conversations that you might be having with a coach, but there's nine coaches on the staff and one of them gets a, an idea, hey, I need to really get a hundred more reps with this guy tomorrow because they were shooting poorly last night and we've got to just double down on it. And I, the only way they know how to do is, is to just get more reps and not yeah. that that's a bad thing until it is. So then all of a sudden you get some feedback. Oh, well, I spent an extra two hours. I went back to the gym at 11 last night and coach and I met up and it was great. I was so glad that he had me, um, had my back and we got some great reps in. That was about two hours at a pretty high intensity. And you're trying to put this together on the fly saying, wait a minute, that wasn't even part of that pre previously yeah. already chaotic event. Or the player gets a call from the, from an agent or maybe their own skills person that they work with in the offseason. Hey, I think, you know, I'll fly out to you and we'll work a little extra or so-and-so says you might want to try doing this extra, that extra. Those things just keep coming. And it's just sort of from that outsider's view, a lot of times what is seen is play on Monday night on ESPN and then, oh, wow, they're playing again on Friday on ESPN. That's going to be great. I love watching this team play. And um, a lot goes on between Monday and Friday that is 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 outside of any of your yeah. control, to, to say the least. Yeah, exactly. And I think some of that you just have to mitigate the risk as much as you yeah. can. Yeah. Sometimes you can't do anything about it in terms of, you know, the, the player wants to go and do that. And that is often like it might not be the best approach to the problem. I think being able to then um, know how to communicate where the problem is in terms of why they perform like that. But usually the go-to is let's just work harder and get more reps in. Right. 
you know, these things are out of your control and outside the environment. But if you know that they've done them, then you can adjust what you do inside the environment. So the more information you have helps that's you great. manage the stuff that you do inside the environment. And then that's also about you just having a good relationship and open communication with that player, their agent, and understanding, yeah, he's doing some more stuff outside. All right, great. Why don't you do that inside the environment or let's build that relationship or just keep the lines of communication open? Because at least then we know that not to like double up Right. Like if we have done that. We can pull back a little bit rather than, right. well, we're going to be rigid and keep doing our schedule regardless. And I think that's where how you operate in silo is like, oh, it doesn't matter what anyone else is doing. I've got my agenda in my department. Yeah. I keep doing it. And it's not like that. It's like, that's not the best for the player. Getting your stuff done doesn't mean it's best for him. It's like getting what he needs in is what's best for him. And if he's already done other stuff, it's like, okay, what did you do? Let's modify what we're doing to adjust for that. No, that's great. Well, you bring up something that's really important in any sport. Um, it is all about the, the, the end user, right? And in this case, that end user yeah, is one, right. the player, and then two, the coaches. How did you start to build buy-in amongst the coaching staff, whether it was back in England um, in in those first division into Premier League days, and then um, once you got into the NBA? Because I'm guessing that there's you know some new school coaches who come in and they're all about the cutting edge and they want all of this. And then there are probably some more old school coaches who are resistant or possibly even outright hostile to some of the methods um, that you and the team are starting to put into place here. So what about when it comes to getting coaching buy-in and then as an extension of that, keeping the focus on the athlete themselves? Yeah. I mean, I think as a coach, it is your, um, duty to maintain your level of education regardless of what you coach or what you do right so i think the problem that i find is that there's not enough coach education out there i think there's a lot of um, maybe medical practitioner education but in general it's hard for coaches to have education there's there's a lot of governing bodies that do not have standards or maintain any type of standards so coaches can't be held accountable to the level of education there's not enough licensing out there that really upholds that standard. So you get you get such a contrast in the level of coaches buying understanding understanding of what what's needed to to manage players. So you've got like young coaches that have like really sought out a lot of information, know their stuff, and they're phenomenal. The same you get old coaches who've got a lot of experience in the game and really know their stuff. Um, but they both have gaps and you both need to be able to learn and figure out where those gaps are. So first of all, it's like as a coach, you need to be open to constantly learning, evolving and growing so you can raise the standards of the game and the sport that you work in. So I think having that mindset is key as a coach um, because you have to have it in any other industry, right, to maintain standards. That's how it's evolved in the medical industry and, you know, in um, business industry. You know, there's, there's many standards that, you know, we need to, to uphold and abide by. So you need to have that open mindset to constantly learn and grow and educate yourself so i think having that um understanding as a coach um but then also when you're working um with within that environment having the understanding that the environment the the baseline and the um the culture should be based on the universal laws of the game itself so if you go into a sports environment, you need to know that environment. You can't come into it thinking that I'm going to bring my environment or my experience into that. It's like, no, 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 I'm going to fit that to that environment, not the other way around. And mm. I think if that's your mindset. 
then you're going to get better relationships already with the coaching staff and with players. So because I played football and that was how I started my career, I found that really easy because I, and that's why I worked the, got the job because I played the game high level, was a professional player. Um, I understand the mentality of the players and I knew the game. I could speak the language. I could get the relationships. I could build the culture. Um, we had a forward-thinking football science culture, and it was that was the, that was the, that was what we, you know, had as our baseline. That was the universal laws, right? So in basketball, to get that environment and get that buy-in, I had to learn it, and then I had to learn the language, learn the game, learn the culture. And when I, but that didn't click initially. That I didn't realize that when I was working in football, that's why I was found it easy. It was only when I come across the basketball and I was like, oh, you know what? I need to try my injury prevention strategies and get my movement stuff in and get my, you know, biomechanics and my PT and all the language and all the things that I was doing. I knew work, but I didn't know that it wasn't, it wasn't the fact that I knew how to do them that work. It was the, how I messaged and communicated those areas huh. well with the environment that made it work. So once I kind of understood that, oh, okay, I really know, need to know how to relate to the players, but understand what their game is, what the agenda is of the coach and staff, build those relationships. And then when you have that relationship, that's the, that's that's how you start to get success because then you get um, a commonality. And the commonality is always the game. How do we get better at the game? How do I use my model to help you get better so you can have a better career, so you can do better? How do I help you? How do I serve you? It's about understanding. So that's your starting point. Know the game, know what they need, know how it all fits together, and then you you reverse engineer it. Well, if I do this, that's going to help you get better at this, which will help you get better at this, which will give you a longer career or help you win a championship. So I think if you communicate from that level, straight away you get buy-in. But if you communicate from, well, your range of motion in your big toe is, isn't enough. So we need you to, to do this exercise. You know, it's like, why? Like, how is that? <laughs> right. that's a waste of my, you know, I ain't going to do that. That's not. But if you say like, listen, I was speaking to your coach and I, we can see that, you know, when you're driving to the basket, you're not as explosive in this area. We want to try and work on these things. Maybe in the weight room, we start working on this and then we will kind of assess your ankle and your foot. That actually gives you a little bit more extension, which, you know, and then you kind of break it down in terms of what the actions are we can work on in the weight room and what the movements are that we can work in from a PT perspective or, you know, just a general movement perspective. Then it kind of patches it in and you get, they get a better understanding of how you can help them and everything lines up. Yeah. yeah. So important to think about it that way to, you know, I, I don't know that there's another way than to, as I had to learn the hard way in, in different instances of how to understand the language and the culture of the NBA and, and just how unique it is. Um, any, any coach D'Antoni stories or, or highlights from those, those years. I had such a blast with coach D'Antoni when he was in LA and, and uh, it just, just take us into a little bit of, or take listeners into his mindset of how he approached players, maybe different than many other coaches do. And then his, his system and, and how you had to co- sort of understand that maybe to, to understand how you could prepare the players better for it. Anything in those, uh, in those tracks of things. Yeah, I mean, like, he had a unique system. He, like, played a fast offense, um, you know, and he, uh, he, he, I, I, he, I loved working with Mike. He was such a, he's one of the best, and I was very, so good to work with him recently at the Nets, too, and he was uh, one of the assistant coaches. Right. Too, so to reconnect with him there was, it was phenomenal. And it's so funny because he, he, he was so ahead of his time and ahead of, ahead of his time in terms of understanding intuitively that he wanted to keep his players fresh. Yeah. 
So, and he was very open and he, he was a really great listener um, and very open to new ideas and like the stuff that um, myself and Dave Hancock, who I worked with at the Knicks at the time, um, had a great relationship with him. And he was like, like, how can we do better? Like just having that openness as a coach was phenomenal. He's like, what, what, what have you guys learned in your environment that we can help and how can we adjust and what can we do? And um, he, he um, was great. At, like he understood the players that ne- they needed to be fresh. He knew the grind and he wasn't like a hard taskmaster. So he, he was very like player driven and, and player centric, which was, which was great. The players loved him. Yeah. Great at communicating and building relationships. And he never did shoot arounds. It was great. He like no shoot arounds. I don't, I don't see the point of them. And it was great because we had just so much more, time to recover for the players. Right. So you can argue both ways. The shooter rounds are important if you need to get more tactical um, input into them and like go rehearse stuff and go through plays. Um, so we modified that in like practices and like even sometimes before the games, we would come in a little bit earlier to do that. So we'd still get the time off, but conserving energy was a, a big thing of his. And, you know, he was like, it was funny when he came to the Nets, he was like, you know what, this sports science stuff, it really it irritates me because it's like this, <laughs> I, I, do, I was doing this intuitively now and everyone now is thinking about this recovery stuff, but that was what gave me the advantage because my players were fresh and because I used the fast offer, you know, we had, a, <laughs> we had to keep our players fresh. So, and all these other coaches, these idiots are like running them into the ground, whereas I was keeping them fresh and I knew like, well, I'll just give them more recovery and it's easy. They need the recovery. They're going to stay fresh. We're going to get more out of them. Whereas these other idiots and now this sports science crap's come in and it's like telling everyone to, they need more recovery. I hate it. <laughs> the, the, the sports science is tipping his hand. He's yeah, yeah. showing it. He was doing load management before, uh, before anybody was exactly. even thinking of yeah. the term. That's hilarious. I could just hear him in that West Virginia twang. Uh, I could just hear, I could just hear him now. <laughs> Idiots. Idiots. Oh man. I love it. I love it. So, uh, you know, as I, as we're talking, it occurs to me that we each sort of had our hand in in some uh, some pretty prominent, um, separate but prominent Achilles tendon rehab processes. Uh, myself involved with the Kobe return to play um, process from his, and and yourself really leading the charge with Kevin Durant. Can you take us through what that? was like as you sort of assumed the as i understand it kind of assumed the the helm of of directing that process and getting him back this late in his career from an injury like that yeah i mean um i was honored to be asked to help with the process and i think um you know it was it was it was a very successful um rehab story based off of you know the level that he was able to return at and i think one of the reasons why um, he did return uh, so well is because he, first of all, took the time to really get himself back to where he wanted to be. So the time without rushing things and really allowing for adaptation over a good amount of time was very mm. um, important to that. And number two, it was a team effort. Like I, I yeah. was, I had a lot of input and did a lot of like one-on-one time with him and had the, the structure of the rehab plan, but it was a team effort. It wasn't just me. It was like, we had a very interdisciplinary integrated approach where it was again, started from, well, what does he need from his game? What is his game? How am I working with the coaches at every level to like give him what he needs that we can do without compromising the injury? What does he need in the strength room to improve and really re- build more robustness to avoid any injury risk, but also to increase 
um, you know, his capacity to tolerate what he needs to do on the on the court. How do we how do we work together with that? What are the actions that he frequently does that he needs to be robust in, and how do we break them down to really work well in the weight room? And how do we work together, you know, as in the PTs and the rehab in terms of filling those gaps and what he needs. And really having a criteria-driven approach where you need to meet this criteria before you go on to this next stage. And starting from this is the game, this is where you need to be at, these are your numbers, these are your actions. Now let's break that down into phases and certain levels of criteria to allow you to then build it back up. And then I think because we did that, it was like a pristine rehab yeah. as we have ever been involved in. It took a village and it took a team. I, I would be remiss if I didn't make very clear that I was a tiny little spoke in the wheel that included Judy Sito and Gary Vitti and Marco Nunez and Marco Yeriverdi and um, just different disciplines coming together in in Kobe's return. And and then obviously the players diligence and um, focus that I I sense Kevin had similar ways to, to, to Kobe of um, just trusting the process, but doing whatever it would take um, based on the plan. So um, yeah, Yeah. it's huge. That was a a huge factor too for me. And it was an absolute privilege because Kev was just from day one, he was like, I'm buying in what you tell me to do. I will do. I trust you. Right. We trusted the process. He he always gives 150% effort in anything he does anyway. Yep. But his effort and his application is always like, and that's why he's one of the, the greatest of all time, right? The yep. same as Kobe. It's like the effort is always 150%. Yep. And anything they do, it's like, I'm going to go all in every single time. So because he did that, he got the rewards. Like if right. you half something, you're going to get half ass results. If you go in 150%, you're going to get the best results ever. And that's, you know, that's why they're just the greatest, greatest players. And that's a, that's a trait that both of those guys have, right? It's just like, I'm, I'm all in. I'm going no, to doubt. The best. no, no doubt. No doubt. No doubt. So yeah, when when you're making that shift, um, and in your case, kind of a, a continual back and forth between these two things of working with an entire squad on a continual basis. You know, you mentioned your tenure at Bolton was quite a long one, and some faster stops then in between, and then obviously what what you've done since uh, with Quantum. What are some things that overlap in terms of just your skill set? And, you know, obviously you've got a team at Quantum. Um, sometimes you might be working just one-on-one or you might be pulling in other uh, other colleagues and picking their brains about different elements. And obviously you've mentioned the culture at, at Bolton and within that, that Knicks organization too. But what are some just crossover ways between working with individuals and working with teams where you've been able to build on your craft and, and learn from colleagues around you. Yeah, I mean, I think like the biggest thing is, you know, if if I get an athlete or a player from a different team that comes and wants to work with me in the off season, I don't view myself as um, the like I, I am um, the focal point for this player. It's like I view myself as the extension of the team. And because that's the the way that I like to work, I then have like a very open communication with the team, the staff, and understanding what their goals are and how I can support and implement them. And this really like just funnel through the information that they they want whilst looking after their player because at the end of the day, it's their player. So I just see myself as the extension. And that's really what I picked up because I've worked on the other side of it. That's what I would want from 
working with external consultants. You want them to buy into what you're doing within that team. And I think because right. I have that attitude, I just develop great relationships with the teams and then they develop trust. And it's like, I'm going to help you. What do you need? Where's he at? What's going on? What's his program? How can we keep consistency? Because yeah, you can come in and do all this fancy stuff and think like, and, the, and then get the player on side and you recruit players. But the bottom line is, you know, that's not going to help because when he goes back into the team environment, they're going to be doing team stuff. And you, you know, or like you're going to create a divide there and they're going to want to do stuff that's different to the team. So you've got to keep the consistency. And if you do find things that, you know, you might uh, want to implement or the, there are some gaps and you just speak about it, you know, in a, in a way where it's going to build trust with the team and also build trust with the player too. So you can get the best for the player. So I think the one thing is like really maintaining like that team and collaborative approach is like the biggest thing. Um, and then just the way that, you know, when players come into um, the environment in the off season and the, they say they come to LA and they're looking to do rehab or they're looking to do training, there's so many moving parts, especially in LA, you've got skills coaches, you've got chiropractors, osteopaths, strength coaches, physical therapists, um, you've got like nutritionists, you've got yoga people, you've got Pilates, you've got psychologists, you've got agents, recovery stuff, all these different things that are very important on all, all, all on their own individual level. But what often happens is they all work in silo. And it's even, these are all like other kind of pods of things that the player's doing. Yeah. And often the player will just be bouncing from one to the other and they don't communicate. So like you've got a strength coach that might be doing one thing with a skills coach that might be even doing some strength coach or doubling up. And then you've got the team coming in doing their stuff with the player. And then, right. so what I really like to do is connect the dots and I'm like, okay, who's talking to all these people? So everyone's on the same page. So we go to the agent and like, right, what's the team behind the team? Okay. So now we know who he's working with. Let's just all start talking. So we're all communicating. We're on the same page. So the player gets the best outcome. And that's, again, just what I learned from working within the team environment. We're all on the same page and we're working to get the best for the player, not the best for my results in the weight room or the PT room or on the skill, like working in silo for your own agenda. It's like, how do we work together interdisciplinary for the player? Yeah, the, and that, that's perfectly said because it it is less about, and, and, and obviously the strategies applied from, from strength and conditioning, from the recovery strategies, from maybe a nutritionist, maybe there's a, maybe there's a person working within mindfulness and all these other things that can be put into the overall pot of the program, Right. the program itself and the actual sets, reps and the dosage and all this other stuff, as long as it's within reason and there's not just some irresponsible level of, of application there. It, it, as long as it's in a a reasonable state of 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 application and dosage, you're okay if the communication is there. If there's a team working together, but so many times that's unfortunately not what happens. There's just all these individuals that are sort of checking their boxes without realizing what's happening all around them. And and like you said, the players, the players, it's not anything that the player's doing wrong or is lazy or anything like that. They're usually doing the things that are laid out for them more times yeah. than not. Most they're, time. you know, and, and if anything, a lot of times they're, they're just maybe doing too many things or things that are undermining each other without knowing it and that kind of thing. Exactly. Yeah. Just doubling yeah. up or just yeah. like going against each other. Right. Right. Um, so Andy, take, take us a little bit into 
quantum and quantum performance and then quantum performance bands and where that came about and when you made that transition to just add, oh, by the way, entrepreneur and and uh, business owner. And then specifically, I'm really interested to get into the Q bands. Yeah, thanks. Um, so my career started you know, as a pro football player, I was blessed to work with some of the best athletes in the world. And um, my goal is just like, how can I just help more athletes at every level? Um, and I just felt that working with teams in isolation was going to be a challenge. So quantum performance really allowed me to continue to working with the best athletes in the world at the highest level, but then also like now develop a platform where I can help influence and impact you know, athletes at every level. So that's mm. really what quantum performance is about. And as we move, you know, more into some of the youth markets and some of the products that are brought out, it's about giving other people access to the stuff that I know instinctively and intuitively that work and just trying to pass that on. Um, so that's really like what quantum is about right now. It's about providing or giving opportunities um, of what we give to the best of the best to to others too and providing that that access um, and that's really what led me to make the Q bands because yeah. I started, I've been using bands all through my career um, as a physical therapist and strength coach. And, you know, there's, there's, there's a lot of different utilities and use cases for bands and there's so many different products that are out there. And, you know, I've, I've used, um, I was using the Corex for many years and, uh, yep. you know, I've used um, the Viper cord, which was another cord uh, system where it was like a, a belt that would go around the waist. And then there's the speed bands, you've got the knee straps, and then you've got wear bands, which is a belt on the ankles. And I was like, you know, I love all these products. I use them, but there's not one that really kind of tied everything together. So I started like piecing them together for different things, depending on what I was trying to um, accomplish with the athlete. And, um, you know, I used, I started um, using them with certain rehabs because, I, uh, I wanted something that I could train players in their natural environment and train the actions that they do um, to just create more control within those actions so they coordinate their movements better, um, but also more robustness within those actions too. So I, I find that using the Q-bands really helps with um, taking players in their natural environment and training them in their natural environment and doing movements that they would do to help support the actions that they do in their natural environment. So that's one thing that I created. Mm. Uh, one of the reasons why I created it. Well, and I want to, I want to pause for, have you pause for a second? Cause I want to paint a little bit of a picture because I'm, I, I would be willing to bet that many of our listeners have actually seen you in pregame situations, working with Kevin Durant or other players with the application um, with the Q bands on or and earlier in your career, different, the lead up to what became yeah. the, the Q bands where you see Andy or a clinician uh, following in Andy's footsteps of, of this, where the player is sort of in a crouched uh, standing up, crouched position a little bit, arms and legs, maybe moving inward and outward in different patterns or together or um, disassociating each other um, in different uh, positions and patterns. And you see sort of bands that are attached to their core, attached to their wrist, attached to their um, ankle. And that's sort of the, if, you, if you've seen that, that is what we're talking about. The reason why I love the tool is because it does something that I'm always seeking um, ways to do with any of the athletes that I work with and that we work with at TD Athletes Edge, which is the idea, whether they're in a rehab, return to play state, or whether they are in a just become a, a bigger, better monster state. And, and that is the, the 
task of getting your hips and your core to become in a symphony. And you please uh, just cake on whatever needs to be added on to, to if that's too rude and crude or too simplistic. But that's one of the really big keys that I love the tool for is it just really gets your, your hips and core in this symphony together. I, I talk to people often about, hey, imagine your <coughs> core is what we all think it is from, say, your, your sternum, um, mid-chest area down to your belly button. Everybody thinks that cylinder there is, is that sort of eight-inch core um, cylinder that we have. But imagine if your hips also became part of that. And they were all working together in this symphony and what that can do for not only something like low back pain, but also just getting you ready for the sport to be prepared. Think about boxing a player out. And if your hips are fairly strong, but they have no way of, uh, are not conditioned or trained to fire in symphony with your core to be prepared for when that player pushes on your back and gets you off balance versus they are ready for that. That could make or break your playing time, make or break the game and, and also set you up for injury versus not. So, uh, th- that's why just the, the tool is so, so spectacular in, in doing that thing that is very elusive and hard to do and, and oftentimes uh, ignored, unfortunately. And, and really what we're getting at is, uh, and, and I think, uh, yeah, I'm going to have you take it over in a second here, but myofascial slings, and again, uh, make that less technical. What the heck is myofascial slings and what are we doing here? Yeah, and, I, and you really summarize it nicely. So it's like within their own natural environment, what I can do with them is like really ramp up, you know, the thing that they need to help coordinate and control mm. you know, the center of mass and the movement. So increasing um, the core activation and the the hip activation and and doing it in symphony, like you said, it was a nice way to put it, like the right yeah. sequence of movement. Um, so the fascial slings, the fascia is like these fascial train lines that go that connect interconnect um, all different uh, body segments. And they run from your upper limb through across your core into your lower limb. And you have like them differently, these different planes. So um, the oblique slings are the ones that I'm trying to target with the, the Q bands. Mm. I learned this from Alex McKeshney because he, he was the one that was pioneered this kind of oblique sling um, tensioning theory. So I, I set the configuration up with the Q bands to allow me to do that. Um, but the beauty of the Q bands is you don't need to do that. There's many other configurations, but I like to use it with the core configuration is what I call it. And what happens is I link the upper limb through the waistband, which pulls them out of the position I want them to be in. So they have to maintain a good position of the core neutral. And then it crosses over to the opposite limb. Mm. And that tensioning through that fascial sling from the opposite upper arm to the opposite lower leg that tensions the fascia which indirectly activates the core muscles in the posterior and the anterior oblique sling so you get better indirect activation of the core muscles and the muscles that help control shearing and shifting of the pelvis and the lower back so yeah you've got all the prevention injury prevention and protective stuff but the bottom line is when you use that with drills that relate to the game, what you can help develop or improve is the athlete's ability to control the center of mass within the base of support. So how well can they control the momentum really has a massive impact on how well they can perform their sports specific actions in the game, like a pull up jump shot or a closeout or change in direction from transition. So, um, 
it, like or even like you say boxing someone off or holding your ground or driving to the basic it's all about controlling your center of mass within your base of support so in order to be able to do that effectively you really need good core control and coordination activation and when i say core that's the muscles that are around the hips the pelvis and the trunk so like you said yeah. block the better you can coordinate that activate that and um, and utilize that when you're performing your sports specific, sports specific actions, the more efficient you can be as a player, and then the more protection you have too, the more robust you have, because efficiency helps with load, it helps with distribution of force, and it help with, helps with your movement quality. And when you can control your center of mass, then you get better alignment and coordination. And, you know, everything comes from the direction of where your chest is. So when you're shooting, where that is, is dependent on, you know, your core control. If you've got poor core coordination, your ability to have good accuracy when you're shot is determined. So, like, if you're falling back too much, that's because your core control and the way that you absorb and distribute that force through your core and trunk is connected. The same with changing direction. If you can't control your core when you're going from right to left and you're trying to follow the ball, your momentum takes you one way and it's a lot harder to then go the other way. So sure. your core and your balance and your hips and your coordination of those muscles really help improve that. So the the core, the the, the, Q, the Q bands really help ramp that up. They increase the awareness of your core when you're doing actions that relate to your game. And that's why I do that a lot in, in warm-up. So I'll put yeah. on the refine movements that they need to help with the actions that they do on the court so like this is similar to what you do so this is a closeout or you're like trying to go into a defensive stance or you're trying to do a drop step or we're getting ready to to do a pull-up or like um i don't know certain other actions that they might just be about to do let's fire up the muscles in your core so when you do that you're more efficient or you're more coordinated and you're going to have more balance more stability and you're going to be better better at performing the action more efficiently. So that's really what why I use the the, the Q bands and why I developed them was to really help the athletes that I work with improve their game. And and I had a prototype that I was um, created with all these different bands, and people started saying to me, "Oh, how do, how, how do I get one of them?" When I'd like do a post on social media or something, and then yeah, I was like, "Well, it's just I've just made it from a bunch of different bands," and then I had a contact that helped me kind of create a prototype. And as I was working with KD, I'd get feedback from him and work. I I really used it throughout the whole of his rehab. And then with other players I've used, yeah, and evolved it. And then since then I was like, well, I wanted other people started asking me about it. Well, where can I get one? So then I decided to then just start making my own. So then I can give other practitioners and athletes access to it and who can also get the game from the benefits of, of using it. And, in sport, you know what it's like. You're constantly on the road and you're in <laughs> different environments and you're always trying to find different types of training equipment to use and you never know what you're going to get, what the gym's like. So I wanted to have something that was kind of all in one that allowed you to to maybe work on other stuff like corrective exercises or some you know, ad hoc strength work or like mm-hmm. a rotation cuff drill or, or whatever it might be, <clears throat> as well as like the sport-specific you know, movements and things like that, that you can do with it. Just like an all in one encompassing tool for a practitioner to take while they're traveling on the road or utilizing any type of environment. Yeah. It's, and it's just such a, um, well put together grouping of, like you said, it's not just one application. There's so many things that you can do with the, with the overall package of the Q bands themselves. And what I, what I also really appreciate and, and love about it is that you, 
in in this industry, you tend to have clinicians who are all bands all the time or all lift heavy all the time. And that's not at all what the message is or the application is by you. It's no. this is this has its place and we're going to use it almost as an easy pass to get to where we want to get to with those um, with those myofascial slings and get those activated at the right times um, so that you don't have to wait in line to get those because the game is coming. We can't wait in line. Um, but then, hey, when it's, we're going to have to also lift heavy and do that stuff on the on the side of in and around this overall approach um but it's just it's just such a a powerful tool no i appreciate that yeah no it's it's always about integrated approach and there's never one tool that fits all it's just it's just a part of the puzzle that you can use to help enhance and develop an athlete's performance and help them reduce their injury risk yeah yeah Yeah. so good yeah it's great we talked about the the progression in the tools and some of the modalities and methods that you use throughout your career but there also seems to be a large mindset component of this because really you probably could have stayed in that Premier League lane your entire career, right? You had, yeah. you know, you're just starting to see Man City crest at that time, you know, towards the top of the game and you've already had your years at Bolton and at Southampton and, you know, a, a lot of people would have been tempted to just stay in the game that they know and love that in your yeah. case you were blessed to play professionally as well but what was it about what's going on between the years that first led you from um you know manchester at the time to to new york and and then all the other stops that we've discussed along the way since then i think like um that my drive and hunger for like personal development curiosity and new challenges uh mm. i think and then just how can i'm just really being able to identify with what my purpose is what I'm trying to do um, and, and then like having a path that kind of aligns with that kind of guides me. Um, you know, I, I wanted, I, I want to, I could have stayed at Man City and won like a bunch of championships and been really involved in that. But I think I always, I always had the challenge and I always had the aspiration of understanding a different culture um, and understanding um, how to work in that and whether I could do that. And that was really my, one of the goals that I'd set early on is like, can, can I do this in other sports and can I connect with other athletes and can I live in a different culture and how do I get those experiences? So there's t- taking risks. I took a risk to do that. And I think just being okay with, um, you know, making mistakes and trying to like, just learn from the mistakes you made uh, when you do take those risks. But I think if you take risks um, and you put yourself in positions where, you have to succeed then you're more than likely going to succeed because you're putting putting yourself in a need state as a um a possibility state so like i could stay comfortable with working with a team but if i stayed in that environment then i'm never going to really grow and fulfill my position but fulfill my purpose of the things that i really want to do the impact that i want to have so i have to broaden my horizons get better understanding of many different cultures so i can be more impactful on a bigger level um but if i stayed in that one environment then i'll only going to know that environment and then i'm not i'm going to be comfortable but by taking myself out of the environment i you know I need. I had. To, I put myself in a situation where I needed to to survive. So there's more impetus on me doing well. Mm. So that was one of the reasons. And I just. I'm just. I've been motivated to do that. Constantly learning and growing. 
Well, credit goal. credit to you because Huge. that's uh, that's easier said than done. But you've you've done it every step of the way, and it's lessons to be for learned sure. by all of us um, for for what you've talked us through in terms of your journey and your approach and all that. I think Phil and I probably have at least ten more um, items on our docket each uh, that we'd love to get to. But what that means is there will be a part two, whether you like it or not, sir. For and sure. uh, <laughs> and uh, but I do want to get to the famous final last question here on on at least this uh this part one episode with you and this is the basketball strong podcast and and what we like to ask at the very end is what does it mean to you to be basketball strong i think that i mean like from an all-encompassing um viewpoint i think being basketball strong um is the the physical um, capabilities to really be able to um, maximize your potential as a basketball player. And when I say physical, I'm talking psychological and physical. Mm. So often we say physical and we think physiological, but when I say physical, I mean psychological and physiological is physical. So being able to really be um, strong in your physical capacity to really fulfill your potential. And that means you are fully prepared, ready, and are doing everything necessary to give your, you, yourself the best opportunity, whether that's just overall um, physiological strength and fitness, but also robustness. And there's so many different facets to that that you can work on. But having you know, a program that um, really um, fulfills all those things that you need for, for the game itself but having like the, the the psychological robustness as well is like a huge part of basketball strength. Lock that one in the vault, Phil. <laughs> it's locked. so good. So good. Andy, where can people follow? It. Where can people check out what you're doing and where can people get the Q bands? Yeah, thanks. So my personal uh, feeds for uh, Instagram is Andy Bar PT. Um, the Cubans is cubans.co. Uh, uh, you can go to cubans.co to um, also purchase the bands uh, or just learn more about them. Um, website is cubans.co. And then Quantum Performance is quantumperformance.co. That, that's uh, where you can get in touch regarding physical therapy or consultancy services also. This has been phenomenal. So good. Thank you so much for taking the time with us today. Uh, thanks so much for having me. It's an absolute pleasure. I appreciate it. Thank you for joining us today. If you enjoyed today's show, and we hope you did, please give us a good review on Apple Podcasts or whichever platform you listen to podcasts on. And so you never miss a weekly episode, be sure to subscribe and follow. You can find previous episodes on our show website. That's www.basketballstrongpodcast.com. For more basketball performance resources and nagging injury solutions, follow me on Instagram at TD Athletes Edge and follow Phil at Phil White Books. Until next week's episode, stay basketball strong. <laughs>